Amen. Well, it's good to be with everybody again this evening. Welcome to the College and Career Ministry here at Bay Life Church. If I haven't met you, uh, my name is Travis, and I'm the pastor of this ministry. I would love to get to know you uh, sometime tonight, so if you would do me a courtesy and maybe just grab some coffee afterwards and stick around, introduce yourself, uh, that w- would be awesome. I am grateful to be with you tonight and would love to know you better. Uh, one of the things that I am so thankful for about this ministry and really the people that God has brought here to this ministry on Sunday nights uh, is that we spend a significant portion of time every year walking through large chunks of the Bible verse by verse. I love that about our group and, and what we do here on Sunday nights. And so if, if you've been with us since uh, kind of the earlier days of my time here uh, in 2014, then you've walked through Colossians for about two or, or three months, and then we spent the summer of 2014 in the book of Psalms. And there's no way we, we finished or could finish the book of Psalms because it's way too many chapters, but, but we just preached the Psalms verse by verse, and then we spent the fall in the book of Jude and spent two or three months in Jude, and we spent all of 2015 walking through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, something like 38 to 40 sermons. And, and one of the things that I just love so much about being a part of this ministry is that I've never had anybody come to me and complain about that. I've never had anybody go, you know, that was cool, but I would love it if the next sermon series was based on, like, The Matrix or something really relevant. Uh, so, so that's exciting to me that, that God has seen fit to bring people uh, to us and to gather us together, people who uh, tremble before the Word of God, uh, who love the Word of God, not because we worship the Bible, but because we realize that the God of heaven and earth has seen fit to inspire this book to be a unique and trustworthy testimony to his character. And when we study it and we submit ourselves to it, we grow in our knowledge of who God is. And as we know more about who God is, we love him more. And as we love him more, we desire to live in a way that honors and glorifies him. So I love that about the fact that that we set time aside every year to walk through huge chunks of the Bible. The other thing is maybe a little bit more practical. Uh, I don't know if you're like me, but anytime I've gone bowling, I've asked for the bumpers to be on (laughs) because I'm entirely incapable of bowling without them. It's not even fun anymore. It's just an exercise in showing how bad my hand-eye coordination is. So put the bumpers on and remove my shame is normally my request. Uh, But it's important to have these guardrails in bowling. And I I think that preaching scripture exegetically, it provides these guardrails that that keep us from jumping off too often into our pet topics. So everybody, not not just pastors and churchmen and churchwomen have pet topics. Maybe you're the kind of person who loves politics, and so no matter where this conversation starts, or no matter where any conversation starts, you will make sure that by the end of it, you are either convincing your friend to feel the burn or make America great again. It doesn't matter where it starts, but you're going there because that's what you love, and that's your pet topic, and that's what you want to talk about. Or maybe you're uh, deeply interested in arts and, and culture and film, and so no matter where this cup of coffee and conversation begins, it will end in me giving you my dissertation on why Leo should have won an Oscar for something far earlier than The Revenant, right? Because you love it so much that you're going to end up there no matter where your jumping off point is. And, and I'm just going to be honest with you. I've got some, some theological um, pet topics that, it, that if I didn't have any bumpers, I would always end up in. I could preach the Trinity for the rest of my life, and I would be perfectly content with that. I could just talk about it forever and be fine with that. I could talk about the incarnation for as long as Baylife keeps me and doesn't fire me, and I would have no problem with that. The Lord's Supper, man, I could talk to you until you pass out from exhaustion about that. Uh, to the exclusion of a lot of other things that are 
very much important. And so the beauty of walking through scripture verse by verse is that it's not Travis who sets the topic of conversation every Sunday night. It's God through his word, and my job is to simply show you what's there. And so for the last six months, or not the last six months, but the next six months, rather, uh, we've committed ourselves to this book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, We're four weeks into it. It feels like we've been in it forever, at least for me. Uh, But we have probably another four or five months. We're going to spend the rest of the summer in 2 Corinthians. We're going to spend a huge chunk of the fall before Advent in 2 Corinthians as well. And and this is a book with a history. I've said this every single week. I hope that you're getting a sense of it, that, that Paul is not writing to strangers. When he places his pen to parchment to write this letter, when he puts it in the mailbox of the Roman Empire... Uh, He has faces in mind and families and people. He knows to whom he is writing and he has a long history with them. And this history is significant. When I was was younger, I was obsessed with the Titanic. Um, Probably because I wasn't allowed to watch the movie, which was a great great call on my parents' part. Uh, But as as like a a fifth grader obsessed with the Titanic, which is just a bizarre thing for a fifth grader to love— Um, I saw a ton of the diagrams of the iceberg that sunk the ship, and maybe you've seen them before as well, where uh, you you kind of are given a perspective from the waterline. So if you were floating in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, uh, about right here, this is the the perspective of these diagrams. So you see what is above the water, and it's this kind of small, unimpressive iceberg. You maybe put some polar bears on it and film a Coca-Cola commercial. Um, but, But beneath it is this monolithic thing. And for those on the ship... They see only the small portion of the iceberg. But for those who are under the water, we see that what sunk this ship is absolutely enormous and sprawling and and terrifying in many ways. And I think that 2 Corinthians is like that to some extent. With no knowledge of the background, you could read this book and the Lord would speak to you through it. And you would walk away encouraged and challenged and convicted and edified. But you would be like the passenger on the Titanic seeing only the tip of the iceberg But in knowing the history of this text and of Paul's relationship with this church, you see this monolithic statement of God about faithfulness and suffering and perseverance and persecution. And it it becomes not just some uh, small iceberg, but it becomes this massive sprawling thing. And it becomes all the more glorious that God would see fit to use these people in this situation to speak to all peoples in all times in all nations. And so I continue to hold this out in front of us because it gives us more richness in our study of God's word. Paul founds this church in 50 AD. He sends them his first letter. They completely misunderstand it. Paul says that you should be in the world but not of the world. And they think that means I'm not talking to anybody who's not a Christian, which maybe you've seen in your own life. The Corinthians are not the only people who did this and it didn't die with the Corinthians. So Paul writes a second letter, which in your Bible is called 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, he corrects all their misunderstandings. When I said be in the world but not of the world, I didn't mean that you just stop talking to anybody who's not a Christian. But not only that, he calls them to repentance in some areas. They're, they're divided amongst themselves. Paul has heard word that they're basically picking their favorite preacher and saying, you like so-and-so, I like so-and-so. Let's just kind of break up around it and let's split apart. So he writes, pleading with them to be united, and they're reveling in this sexual sin that has enveloped the church. They're proud of it. And he basically writes them again to say, what on earth are you doing celebrating this? 
So, 1 Corinthians is written and misunderstood. The second letter called 1 Corinthians is written and they reject it. Uh, We understand what you're saying perfectly clearly. We just don't like it. So, we're going to find apostles who tell us the things that we want to hear. And so they find people who claim to be apostles who tell them what they want to hear. So Paul visits them. He makes this emergency visit to confront them in person, to have a very serious conversation with them, and they levy all sorts of charges and criticism against Paul as to why they don't need to listen to anything he's saying. If you were really an apostle doing God's will, bad things wouldn't happen to you, right? Jesus said you could have life and have it in abundance, and you seem to be suffering quite a bit, so you must not know Jesus. You know, your letters are really interesting and entertaining and very well thought out and actually terrifying, but you're a boring, frumpy public speaker. And I would much rather listen to somebody who's funny and interesting and hip and engaging and uses cool illustrations. You know, all these other apostles that we've found that have taken your place, they do more miracles than you. It's more, it's more engaging to watch them. They do more cool things than you do. And ultimately, I think probably the one that's most wounding for Paul is, I don't really think you love us like you say that you love us. So Paul leaves, discouraged, frustrated, deeply concerned. He writes the third letter which is called the tearful letter. And he begs them to repent. He warns them that if they continue this course, they are heading for shipwreck and destruction. And he sends this letter off. And by the grace of God and the workings of the Spirit, they actually repent. The Corinthians go, oh my bad. Maybe not in so few words. But Paul receives word that they've repented, but they haven't just repented, they've turned on each other again. Because now they're looking at the people who turned them against Paul and saying, Steve, what were you doing telling us this? And Steve's going, I'm sorry, I didn't get it. And, and, and this conflict is breaking out once again in the church. So with that in mind, Paul picks up his pen for a fourth time to write Second Corinthians, hoping to tie up these loose ends, to finally put down the division, to finally set this church straight so that the ministry of the gospel can go forward among these people. Now, I say all of that not to kill a dead horse and keep telling you the same thing over and over and over again. There's going to come a point where I just stop rehashing the history because I'm hoping that you just dream about it at night when you hear it. But because this history, this background has significant bearing on the scripture that we walk through today. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to be in verses 13 through 22. We'll back up a little bit to where we were last week so things are in context. So Paul says this, we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand. Just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has appointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts. 
is a guarantee. Some of you might know Shane Drury, who is the high school pastor here at Daylife. And I absolutely love Shane. He's one of my favorite people on staff. I have a lot of favorite people on staff, which I guess doesn't really fit with the term favorite because you're supposed to pick one. Uh, but, but Shane's awesome. He's actually going to be filling in for me while I'm in Uganda in July. So if you don't know him, you'll get to know him. He's been teaching me how to care about sports. I know things about basketball now. Steph Curry is an important person who beat LeBron James at the basketball, and that's somehow very important as well. See, I couldn't have talked like that like two months ago. I'm, I'm, it's a new me. Um, but, but in talking with Shane, uh, one of the things I appreciate, appreciate about him is that, that he takes the Word of God very seriously, and he knows way more than I do. And so I sat probably two or three weeks ago in my office, and I read five different translations of this. I even read the message, which never happens. I listened to it in five different people talk, uh, reciting it, thinking maybe if I hear somebody say it out loud, maybe it'll click and make sense to me. I'm walking in circles, reciting it to myself. I must have looked like a crazy person. And I felt like I was smashing my head against the wall because I just had no idea what it was saying. And so I sent it to Shane. And I said, if you have any insight into this, I would greatly appreciate it because I have no idea what I'm going to say in two weeks about this passage. And so he sent me some commentaries and some resources that were helpful, but he walked over to my office and he said, you know, Travis, this is the sort of thing that you would probably never preach unless you were going verse by verse through the Bible. Uh, Because nobody would come to this and go, yeah, that sounds like a great idea for Sunday night when they could just go to John 3.16 and it would be really easy. Uh, He followed that up with, man, God's put it in there for a reason and, and we need to preach the whole counsel of God's word but good luck with this one, man. <laughs> so challenge accepted. Um, I, I think that this, this passage of Scripture, the more I look at it, the more that I wrestle with it, the more thankful I am that it's here. There, there are tremendous resources and, and tremendous just direction and, and guidance for what a godly life looks like as we see how Paul responds to criticism because that is what he is doing. And so uh, as, as you look through this text It is profoundly confusing, but the heart of it is that Paul is addressing a criticism that has been levied against him by the people who are trying to take his place in Corinth. Essentially, the matter is this, that Paul told the Corinthians uh, earlier in the letter of 1 Corinthians and in further correspondence with them that he planned on visiting them. Uh, it It was originally one visit. Uh, It turned into two visits, and basically, Paul is on this side of the Roman Empire, and he is trying to get to this side of the Roman Empire, and Corinth is somewhere around here. And so what he says to them is, on my way to Asia, on this side of the empire, I am going to stop over and say, hey, what's up to you guys, and then travel to Asia. And then on my way back from Asia, on my way to Judea, I'm going to stop and visit you again, and then you can send me on my way. Well, after Paul tells him that this is his plan, and he's very careful in 1 Corinthians to qualify this and say, if the Lord wills it, if the Lord makes a way, this is, this is what I intend to do. Uh, so it's, it's not this steadfast, I will do this. It's a, if God uh, enables me, this is my plan. Well, after he's laid these plans out before them, he gets word that they've completely rejected him as an apostle. And so he makes an emergency visit. And that emergency visit goes so badly that Paul is not sure if, if he will be welcomed back into Corinth at all. And so he goes on to Asia. And you'll remember from several weeks ago that while he's in Asia, he almost dies. 
and he despairs of life itself. And so he says, you know what? I think I'm just going to send them a letter first and see if they're going to kill me when I show up or not. But this is all that the people who oppose him need to jump on the issue. And they say, didn't Paul say he would come back? He's not back. Do you really think Paul loves you like he says he loves you? If he did, he would be here. He's not here. He gave you this letter. Where is he? Uh, Aside from the fact that, didn't he say he would be here? He's not. Can you trust anything he said? And so ultimately, the, the issue here, and Paul realizes it, the issue here is not Paul's travel plans. Because he's not being attacked for his travel plans. This is the ancient world. People know that those things can change on a dime. You get robbed on the interstate, and you don't call the police to fix it. You have to limp to the nearest town where people may or may not help you. There's a landslide or a flood that destroys the road, and it takes months for those roads to be repaired. You get sick in whatever city you're in, and you spend six months recovering from it. They understand that plans change. The problem is not that Paul's plans change. The problem is that this is a jumping-off point for people to attack his character and his integrity. So Paul doesn't even address why his plans changed, at least not in this section of the text, because he realizes that there are bigger fish to fry here. The first thing that is being questioned is whether or not he even loves the Corinthians. So, he says in this way, or he he tackles the issue in this way. He says that on the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us just as we will boast of you because I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on the way to Macedonia, to come back to you from Macedonia, to have you send me on my way to Judea. The first question he is addressing is, do I really love you like I've said that I love you? Because people are questioning that. And so what what Paul wants to do is, is to lay a foundation for not what his travel plans were, but why he made them in the first place. He, he essentially says this, I want you to understand why I even told you I would visit you. Uh, that you, you question whether or not I love you. Let me just tell you why I wanted to, to spend time with you in the first place. And you'll remember from last week that the first thing he points them to is the day of the Lord. And he says, on that day, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. He says that on that day at the end of time, despite everything that's happened between you and I, I am confident of the fact that we will stand in the presence of the God to whom we have prayed, to whom we have offered our prayers and our worship, The God whom I have preached to you, I am confident that we will stand in his presence in the new heavens and the new earth, and you will be joyful that I was your apostle, and I will be overjoyed that you were my church. And and that hope extends to you and I as well. That's not just a hope for the Corinthians and Paul. There will come a day when all of us who spent our time in this college and career ministry for however long our time was here, We will see one another in a new heavens and a new earth in a glorified body. And all of the the conflict or the drama that may have been experienced between you and somebody else in this room and all of the frustration that you may have had and, and all of the difficulty, it will not matter because we will marvel at what God has done among his people. And Paul says, the only reason I wanted to visit you in the first place is because I was confident that that day was coming. He goes on, he says, I was sure of this, and because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, on the first passing through Corinth, that you might have a second experience of grace. This experience of grace, I'm sure, has been taken in many ways, but but I think that the the clearest way to take it, and the commentaries kind of run in this direction, is that Paul 
really and sincerely believes that spending time in the presence of other Christians is one of the graces of God. And for the Corinthians to spend time with Paul is a gift from God to them. And for Paul to sit among the Corinthians and to tell the stories of what God has done in his missionary journeys and to hear the stories of what the Spirit is doing in Corinth, that is a gift from God. Listen, the New Testament has no category for the Christian who is capable of spending time in fellowship with other believers and chooses instead to sit in their underwear and listen to Matt Chandler sermons and spin a Hillsong record. They have no category for it. The apostles would think that was lunacy. Paul would say that's absolutely insane. It's the grace of God that you can meet together and you can gather among each other. I wonder, do do you and I have that sort of view of the church? The fact that you are in this room, do you count it as the grace of God in your life? Because for far too many of us, this is a necessary box that we check throughout our week so that we continue to appear pious and spiritual and as those who have not backslidden. But Paul says, the reason I want to be with you is because I love you and because spending time with you is a gift of God in my life. Paul wants to encourage them and remind them that, that he does indeed love them because this is going to be a harsh letter. I, I said already that that it feels like we've been in it forever, but it's probably just because I've been reading it for like three months to get ready for it. We're only in chapter one. You got 11 more to go. Paul's gonna get real, real serious. But what Paul recognizes and and what you and I need to recognize is that difficult conversations outside of a mutual understanding that there is love between the parties, those are ineffective. How often have you seen somebody or or been the person who calls a friend to repentance and it blows up in your face? Now, I can't guarantee that it's always going to work no matter what the relationship is. But if the person that you're calling to repent doesn't know that you love them, expect it to be entirely ineffective. The call to repentance that is not marked by love has no power in the life of anyone. And so Paul is getting ready to layeth the hammer down on these people. But he wants them to know, first and foremost, I love you. And it's only because I love you that I'm doing this. The surest sign of my hatred for you would be my indifference, not my contempt. I wonder, in our lives with our brothers and sisters in the Lord, do they know that we love them? Or do we just assume that they know that? Because we sit in the same room relatively often. Paul wants to make it clear that whatever these people are accusing him of, it is not true. The reason for his change of plans is not that he does not love them. And so he goes on. He says, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. So the first question that is being raised is, does Paul really love us? And Paul answers, absolutely. The second question that is being raised is the question of Paul's integrity. 
Can Paul be trusted? Now, really, the heart of their question is, does Paul speak out of two sides of his mouth? Does he say yes, yes, and no, no? Does he just tell people what they want to hear so that they'll give him what they want or what he wants? I, I know we're in the middle of a presidential election season. I'm not going to comment on it one way or another. Um, but the earliest election that I do remember uh, would have been in 2004, and I believe that it was John Kerry and George Bush running against each other. And I remember that, that there was this criticism that was levied against John Kerry by people who didn't care for him so much, uh, that he was essentially a, a flip-flopper, is what they called him. So when he was among conservative people, he was limited government, pro-life, pro-military, all, all sorts of things like that. And when he was among liberal people, he was pro-choice, expansive government, uh, cut government spending on the military, and so on and such forth. He told people what they wanted to hear so he could get what they wanted out of him, or out of them. At least that was the accusation. Whether that's true or not, Google it. Um, but this was the accusation, and so I remember there being this campaign among people who didn't like him, where they would put his name and his running mate's name, and then they would put a pair of flip-flops under it. And that was like the campaign button because he would flip back and forth uh, on his opinion of the issues. And th this is essentially the accusation made at Paul, is that you say you're going to show up, but you don't really mean that you're going to show up. It's just something you say to pacify us, and you have no intention of fulfilling your uh, statements to us. You're a flip-flopper. So the question is of Paul's integrity. Can Paul be trusted? Can I just tell you that the question of integrity is not just significant for Paul, it is significant for every single Christian in this room. Because your integrity is the platform upon which you stand when you proclaim the gospel. And if you've shot holes in it, don't expect your voice to carry very far. So, Paul asks this question. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Am I being double-minded? Did I just say this to impress you? Do you think I just changed my mind because I didn't feel like it? Because that's the assumption, is that there weren't good reasons why Paul wasn't able to make it. So look at how Paul defends his integrity then. He says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. You can trust me. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Salvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Paul grounds his integrity in the incarnation. Paul's integrity uh, is not based on some sort of social contract theory or some sort of philosophical, ethical ponderings over a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Paul says, you can trust me because I am proclaiming the gospel of a God who is trustworthy and God's trustworthiness is most manifest in the person of Jesus because every single promise that God made from the garden and the promise of the one who would crush the serpent's head to Abraham looking out and God saying that I will make you the father of many nations, to David receiving this promise that there will be one from your line who sits on the throne forever. Every single solitary promise that God made finds its fulfillment, not just in an event, but in a person. And Paul says, my job is to preach that person. And because my job is to preach that person, I want to be marked by everything that makes that person significant. And integrity is a defining feature of the incarnate Son of God. 
Paul says, you can trust me because I preach Christ and him crucified. And you can trust God because he has made good on his promises in the flesh and the body and the blood of his son. This is why I could preach on the incarnation for the rest of my life and be perfectly content. Because so much of our life is grounded not just in God's commandments, but in a person. Philippians 4, Paul calls us to serve. Why? Because the Son of God took on flesh and served. Here in Corinthians, why is it that we're people of integrity? Because God's integrity is demonstrated in the Son of God. It is inconceivable to Paul that somebody who is marked by the name of Jesus would not be trustworthy because the person of Jesus is the surest sign that God is trustworthy. Can I just plead with you as a Christian that you would be marked as a person of integrity? That that your word would be trustworthy? That people would have confidence in you? Because in being a person who speaks out of two sides of their mouth, in being a person who does not make good on their word, you do more violence to the Christian faith than 10,000 arguments from 10,000 atheists. In refusing to live a life of integrity, the gospel is made null and void in your life. What a tragedy that that is. To be the person who sits here on a Sunday night because you nursed your hangover off from Saturday evening. Uh, To be the person uh, who raises your hands in worship and posts pictures of your missions trips, but to treat the people in your work like utter scum. Uh, To be the person who is a horrible boyfriend or girlfriend or romantic partner, but to talk about the love of God. You do such violence to the gospel by not being a person of integrity that for Paul it is inconceivable that you would preach Christ and not live as the incarnate son of God who is integrity in flesh. The Christian life is meant to be one of integrity because God's integrity walked the streets of the Middle East in the form of a man. And if you're not a believer tonight and and you wonder why Christians talk so much about Jesus, this is why. Because every single article of our faith is grounded in him. What a glorious statement that every promise of God finds their yes in Christ. Everything that he has ever said, every statement he has ever made, it culminates 2,000 years ago, and we live in the shadow of that monumentous event. So, Paul goes on, and he says that this is why, through him, we utter our amen to God for his glory. There's a part of the Christian liturgy in our prayers that I don't think many of us give much thought to. Um, there's, a lo- there's a lot of things about the way we pray that are very ritualistic. So uh, certain people start with, dear God, and they do it every time. Certain people start with, uh, hey God, which is very casual, and they do it every time. But almost every Christian ends their prayers with, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. And nobody thinks about why. But Paul says here, we pray in Jesus' name. Because in our prayers, we claim the promises of God, and in Christ, those come true. Consider that. 
as we move into this time of communion, as we move into this time where we come to the table of Christ, the promises of God, the very integrity of God in flesh, may you and I be people of integrity. And may those words ring more true than they have in the past. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what uh, a gift it is that we can have confidence that your word is truth because your word has become flesh and dwelt among us. And Lord, what a challenge it is in our own lives that we would be people of integrity. Not just because that seems like a nice thing to do. Not just because it benefits us, Lord. But because the gospel is at stake. Lord, when we are double-minded, when we say one thing and do another we preach Christ but, but don't live in light of his cross, Lord, it shows that we have not fully thought through what Jesus did and who he is. God, make us people of integrity. God, make us people who marvel at Christ and his work and his continued work as he sits at the right hand. And Lord, it's in his name that we say amen.